This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. And I'm Dave DeBoat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And good morning alongside Jay Moran. This is Dave Debo. Bridget Jaipal Valenza is away. Coming up on the program later today, Jolanda Hill will be here. She's from Colored Girls Bike 2. And a little bit later in the program, Tarya Parsonen with the Western New York Literacy Initiative. Jay has a lot to discuss there. Uh, normally, in a discussion like this, we would bring in Bridget. She is off today. So for a moment or two, I would just like Jay and I to talk to you specifically about this program and about your involvement in it. We've been doing this show for about a month, and uh, there's a lot of things we have learned. Um, it was obviously pulled together on short notice to respond to the shootings in the neighborhood. And it's a program where we really, frankly, need to see more input from you. Um, the guests are wonderful. I think the community discussions that we've had have been absolutely amazing. But we really want to hear from you. So let's just take a moment to to really talk about how you can do that. You can use the Talk to Us feature on the WBFO app. Uh, you could grab your phone and literally record a comment. Uh, we're, we're not doing call-ins at this point in the program yet. But you could record a comment about a program. And we would add that to the bank, and as soon as we discuss a topic that is in any way related to that, we could play your comment right back on the air. So there's one way that uh, you could end up being a part of the program. You can leave us a message on, on email, news at WBFO.org, or on Twitter at WBFO. There's a lot of ways to get involvement in this program, and we do want to hear both from real people and community activists. We've certainly had quite a few of them on. And we've certainly had an opportunity to try and get those voices. But if there's a voice out there that, for example, you think really needs to be a part of this program, by all means, you can make those sort of suggestions, too. So you can either comment on our guests or just suggest a guest to us, either one. Yeah, most certainly. It would be uh, excellent to hear from you in any way whatsoever. And we have actually heard from several people through emails or through just general discussions about things. But I, I think what you're trying to get at here is... Bring your content, whether it's written yeah. content or audio content, and we'd love to insert it into the program. I think it would only add a little bit more into it. You alluded to the idea that maybe in the future there will be phone calls coming, but it's a big physical mm -hmm. lift to get that uh, as part of, uh, of what's happening here. But right now, this is a great way for you to get involved. And I know a lot of you are very intent on what's going on here, have been listening very carefully and uh, I know it's sparking a lot of conversation around the area. So what do you have to offer about the show? What have you heard that you thought was intriguing? And obviously, we're not covering every point. We can't only do so much in a, in a certain types of, of conversations. But we'd love to hear from you in any of those ways that Dave just mentioned. And let's just recap those ways. 
at WBFO on Twitter, via email, news at WBFO.org, or the, the one that I really like a lot. Again, if you have our app, you can leave a recording right on our app. Hit that Talk to Us button. It will send whatever you say directly to us, kind of like you're recording a voice memo on your phone, but then the app kicks in and brings it to us. We've had a lot of comments about the show, but Jay makes a very valid point. That's different. People say, oh, I love the program, and that's great, and we want to hear that. But that's different than actually contributing content to the program. Jay, I only have a moment or two here, but I do want to talk about some of the things that you have seen uh, that is that, that the people are saying about the program. What kind of content have people contributed for you? Because I know you were out at Juneteenth. I was as well. Uh, we ended up uh, gathering lots of information for the program, and uh, we'll bring you those segments uh, eventually in the next uh, days and weeks here. But as we wrap up this this plea, I guess this urgent plea, uh, Jay, I, I wanted you to just describe some of the things that you've seen so far. I think the uh, it's a, just a general theme is that everything is individual. And, and it really is. Whether it's somebody, uh, a 75-year-old veteran who I met over at Martin Luther King Park at, at Juneteenth, or if it's uh, uh, like yesterday, we had Dr. Kenyani Davis from the, the Community Health Center of Buffalo here. Whatever the case may be, this everybody has their own reaction to it. It does center around community. It centers around neighborhood. That's all very much a, a part of it. But the the types of responses that we've had, what did the shootings mean to you? What does your neighborhood mean to you? These are the types of things that have drawn great response. And I think some, from our guests, we've heard some really interesting and compelling uh, discussion on that. And again, back to you, you listening right now. What do you think about what's happening here in Western New York? The key to this program, and this is really the bottom line, is to keep the spotlight on the real issues that have emerged or have become very clear since May 14th. And that's what we want to keep doing here at WBFO. And we really could use you uh, and your input to make that happen. We say that at the end of each program. That's our promise to you here at WBFO. Again, let me let me just underline the ways you can reach us again at WBFO on Twitter. Hit the Talk to Us app uh, button on the app or news at WBFO. We'll be right back. One of the best ways to support WBFO is to become a valuable sustainer. It is the most mutually beneficial relationship we can have with our members. Whether you give annually or monthly as a sustaining member, you allow not only us, but also yourselves to be financially prepared throughout the year. Plus, the amount you give is entirely up to you. Whatever you are comfortable with, no amount is too small. Please take a moment to visit our website at wbfo.org or give us a call at one 1- 877-456-8870 to donate today. Thank you. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. Adirondacks, Canadian Rockies by Rail, Chautauqua and American Narrative, and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED PBS now available on YouTube. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. 
Later in the program, Tarya Parsonen will be here talking about literacy. But first, Jolanda Hill is with us. She's a policy fellow at the Partnership for Public Good. She's a founder of Colored Girls Bike 2. We'll have more about that as the program unfolds. And uh, this, I found, was really uh, insightful and interesting. Uh, Jolanda, thanks for being here, by the way. Absolutely. Your LinkedIn page shows you with your back turned to the camera so we can read the sweatshirt. And it says, Colored Girls Bike 2, obviously the name of your organization. And this I thought was pretty funny. In larger print, it proclaims that you're a psychologist, but it's spelt like cycle, like yes. bike. Yeah. I thought that was uh, very <laughs> clever and, and really kind of instructive. You look at bicycles as a community activity, no? Yeah. So I think bicycles serve many different purposes, right? During the women's uh, rights, um, it served as a way to liberate women during a different time in our history. Um, you can argue that black women weren't a part of that time in history as it relates to bicycles and women, but it did serve that purpose. Are you talking um, about the suffrage movement? Yes. When, okay. Yep. Um, and I think now we're being intentional about centering women um and liberation and its connection to bicycles. But yeah, so I think bicycles serve many different purposes. And we use the bicycle as a tool um, to create systems change. Um, And we focus specifically on um, the areas of mobility justice and healing justice. What is mobility justice? Yeah, so uh, mobility justice is this concept um, that came out of this um, event back in like 2016 where um, urban planners of color, uh, transportation planners of color came together and were like, yo, um, you know, we don't really see ourselves represented in um, the institution of of urban planning and design, nor in transportation. Um, It's a hella white, you know, it's a hella white space. How can we diversify this space? How can we um, have, you know, our ideas and our viewpoints kind of represented better? And so out of that conference came um, some principles. And I won't get into all of the different principles because it's a lot of them. Um, but I would definitely say go check out The Untokening. But overall... The what? The Untokening. Is that a, a book or a website? That was the conference. The name oh, of the I conference okay. is like, how can we you know, untokenize black bodies and brown bodies in the spaces of urban planning and design and and how we think about them within our public spaces, Um, how we think about us, people of color, within our public spaces. And it's a space that you argue black people have been excluded from. The urban planning and design uh, space and transportation? Absolutely. Um, If you look at um, who's the front face... um, Within like those institutions and who predominantly is represented, it's white men um, mm. and and white people. Um, and there's been this movement over the past, you know, I feel like 10, 15 years um, to ensure that people of color are better represented. Like, for example, safety. Right. So when we think about safety, typically in the context of um Traffic safety and urban planning, um, we think about it as like traffic violence, right? And like we need to keep people safe as they cross the streets and we need to, you know, better design our roads. But for people of color, safety looks a lot 
It's a lot more complex than that when we think about how we move through public spaces, right? So we need to think about how do we keep ourselves safe from the police? How do we keep ourselves safe from being extracted from um, while we are moving about, right? Tickets, fines and fees. Um, There's just like a lot of different things there that like when... um, you don't have that representation there. Those types of issues don't get yeah. addressed. We've all heard stories about people pulled over driving while black. Sounds like you're arguing there's such a thing as biking while black. I think, yes, driving while black, biking while black, walking while black, any sort of movement that black people are engaging in um, puts them at risk of... Um, being in an unsafe situation. And we, there's so many examples I can get into, right? Trayvon Martin, um, Sandra Bland, right? So many different um, people that have lost their lives just moving about within our public spaces. And so overall, I think that's what mobility justice is getting at. And that was just one example about how can we create system change through the lens of mobility justice, urban planning um, and transportation. Um, And then the other piece of our work is healing justice, right? How can we heal ourselves um, using the bicycle as a tool um, to do that. And so I think, um, you know, that's why Color Girls Bike 2 exists. And it is it started, you know, just about, you know, getting black women, women of color together um, to, you know, get on bikes and, and heal ourselves. But it has evolved since then. Um, so, yeah. It, it's a community now. Fair it's a movement. Say? Okay. Yeah, it's a movement and it's a community, all those things, yes. You, you brighten up when you say <laughs> that. You, you started to, to laugh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a movement. I think um, it's not a club. Some people say it's not a club. <laughs> They're um, a biker club. No, Yeah, no, 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 I think it's more of a movement, an ideology, and a way of thinking, and um, a way of life, right? Like, movement is a part of everything we do. It's been a part of the human experience since time immemorial. Um, And I think that's what Color Girls Bike 2 really captures while also being intentional about centering uh, women, gender non-binary people. Um, When we say women, we mean trans women and cis, uh, cis women. So, yeah. Talk about the name, Colored Girls Bike 2. Yes. First of all, when I heard it, I thought, well, yeah, of course, colored girls bike. Uh, but but I think you already addressed the inclusion idea. You wanted that to be part of the name initially, colored girls bike too. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So I first want to say that it's it's not appropriate, right, in 2022 to refer. I was going to get there, but go ahead. Stop. Yeah, to Start. refer to um, black people as colored people. Right. So just, but just, you did that intentionally. PSA. Yeah, and so um, our goal with using the term color was basically to recycle and reclaim this term that was used, you know, at one time to limit and shame and, you know, um, kind of isolate people into one space, right? Buses, water fountains, all those different things, um, and to reclaim it and to connect it to something that's empowering, liberating, um, and that has the potential to, right, create movements, uh, create mm-hmm, systems change. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what it's about. Yeah. And then the two part, the idea that, of course, they bike, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course. Yeah. I think that, <laughs> yeah, I think that cycling... 
um, and just all sort of creative ways to move about has always been a part of Black culture. Um, We've always had to find creative ways to move about within public spaces just because of limited access to things like cars. Um, I mean, you know, bus bus access is still a problem in 2022. And so, of course, we, we bike too, right? And so um, growing up, of course, I would see folks on bicycles and stuff like that. But from my experience, I'm not speaking for all Black people. Um, I would predominantly see men. Mm. Um, on, on bicycles. And that's not to say that there weren't women. I just didn't see them. And so I thought it was important to like intentionally create that space while also being very um, political in the name um, and radical in like how we approached um, approach cycling. When, when did you found it and how many people do you have? So we don't have a actual a system membership for list. membership okay. lists. Yeah, we yeah. are thinking about... Um, kind of transitioning into something like that so we can keep account of like who's coming you know to provide more resources um but i would say over the past because we started officially in 2017 so from 2017 till now i I feel like over hundreds of of women have come um yeah and you had an event this weekend Uh, all right we did how'd that go it was cool it was cool it was a small ride um i can always appreciate like the intimacy of our rides um Excuse me. They're never really um, super huge, but they're big enough for us to connect with each other, to um, express ourselves about things happening in, you know, our our personal lives as as black women, uh, women of color um, and gender non-binary people. Right. Right, And and those identities as well, because I don't want to exclude those folks. Um, And then it also gives us an opportunity to talk about what's happening in the world and how it makes us feel. And it's just something about connecting that to biking that's super liberating, right? Like after we get done talking, we get on our bikes and we take up space unapologetically. And it's super cool. Uh, The reason I asked when you were founded, you said 2017, obviously long before May 14th, long before the shootings of this past year. Yes. Bring it home for me though. What does a group like yours do in light of the shooting, or how has your mission changed in light of the shootings? Yeah, so I don't think our mission has changed. I think overall we're a community organization that centers Blackness and, you know, um, other groups of color, but we definitely, definitely are unapologetically, we center Blackness. And I think as a community organization, um, it is our duty, regardless of our mission, to serve when our community is in crisis. Um, so for us, it wasn't about what is our mission? What is our mission? It was more about like, how can We're we... We're already here. How can we help? <laughs> how can we, as, as people that identify as Black, right, that grew up in this community, some of the folks that come to the space, um, help our community in time of need? And um, in collaboration with several other organizations like Organizations like Black Love Resist and the Rest, um, African Heritage Food Co-op, Feed Buffalo. Um, you have Black Monarchy, um, Urban Fruits and Veggies. Um, we all came together and shout out to Felicia Brown um, for, you know, being intentional about creating that space. About Felicia how is the executive director of Black, Black Love, Love Resist and the Rest. Rest. Yeah. Okay. Um, how can we create an intentional space to not only serve our community, community in this time, but also unify um, and so that's what happened. We started to do food pop-ups and we're still doing them. 
where we're um, going in different locations on the east side of Buffalo, um, providing food um, to folks. Um, sometimes we'll provide like bike service, like CGBT will provide like um, bike repair. Um, and just plugging that, if anybody wants to help us with bike repair at these food pop-ups, hit me up. But yeah, so, um, and then in addition to that, we just been on social media, just being very expressive about how we feel and how we think maybe the community community feels, right? Because we're advocates. Um, and just saying what needs to be said about how we don't think that justice has been served on the east side. Um, and we can't go back to business as usual. So, so I think that's what we did. We didn't, you know, we didn't read our mission first before we went out yeah, on boots yeah. on the ground. We, we just, you know, we, we seen what was happening and we, um, we did our duty. Yeah. You, you saw a need, yeah. you're filling the need, but now there is also the need for more social action. Is it yeah. fair to say that justice is not served? What do you mean? Elaborate. Yeah. So I don't think justice has been served um, just in the way processes, the way certain things have been approached as it relates to. um, And I know it gets tricky around like the tops conversation, but just looking at um, some of those systems and processes around the tops reopening. and right, and so, and this is not to put blame on anybody because it's 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 a tricky time. Like, how do you get people food, um, but how do you do it in a respectful way? Um, mm. I don't have all of the answers, but I do know um, when you rush things, there is a potential for harm to to take place. Um, and so, I think processes overall um, maybe can be. Still can be more or could have been. Are you saying maybe more collaborative, um, more transparency, um, more accountability, and um, I think, for example, like a lot of money has flown has um, come into the east side, um, but yet there's still a lot of people that were impacted by the racist terrorist attack. Um, that are still struggling. And so the question becomes, what happened? Um, And how could we have done a better job at, like, accounting for all of that money? So that way, um, you know, the folks that are impacted don't feel like they've been forgotten or um, are going without their needs met. So I don't, I can't, uh, you know, give you details for all of the different sure. ways that justice hasn't been done, because I think that they're, we're still learning a lot. Um, we're only going into what, like a month and some weeks out. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think processes and the way certain things have been done, haven't been done in the best way. In in our remaining minutes, talk more broadly about racism on the East side and solutions you see that could be out there. If indeed there are any. Yeah, so racism on the east side. That's an interesting question. Um, On this program in the past, some people have said you got to kind of, you can't treat the disease. You got to at least to some degree treat the symptoms. Address housing, address food deserts, address segregation, uh, address white attitudes, address education. Um, All of those might be symptoms of the bigger disease. Is there any one piece in that equation that, to your mind, 
make sense or needs to be tackled first? What's what is the big issue that might be transformative? Yeah. So I think one of the first things from like a legislative perspective, we need a reparations bill. So we need reparations like ASAP. Um, clearly for folks in Buffalo, the city of Buffalo, but just nationally. I'm not sure why that wasn't proposed, especially when this happened. It was a racially, um, you know, motivated, uh, you know, uh, terrorist attack. Mm. Um, So where's our reparations? Um, And then as far as... Can I stop you and go further there? Yeah. I I think there are a lot of ignorant things that are discussed when people say reparations. Mm, um, mm. Well, you weren't a slave. Well, you weren't disinvested. <laughs> That's gaslighting. Uh, right, uh, but, but talk to me about that. Why is, in light of lack of economic participation, lack of economic investment, in light of all that, why is reparations relevant for you today? Reparations are relevant um, for me because personally, my family is still suffering because their families, you know, their ancestors and their family's families um, didn't get what they were deserved all of those or old, excuse me, all those years ago. Um, and so my family, like so many other families, are playing catch up. You have been in a system you, you have been that kept out of the process for generations. You say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're trying to play catch up in the system that is rigged, and then we're told we're gaslighted to say pull pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Yeah. When we don't even have the same pair of boots. I'm trying to do a bad analogy <laughs> as, you know, our white counterparts. Um, or maybe we do, but there's holes in them and our foot's falling out, right? Or like, you know, so I think yeah. Um, and we can get into the nitty gritty of, oh, you weren't. But I think that um, if somebody was to say that to me, I would probably ignore them um, because I know what's owed to me. And I know what's owed to other people that look like me and other black people. Um, and it's time for us to get what we're owed so that we can we can catch up um, and really start to um, see the progress that we want in our communities. Um, yeah. So. In addition to reparations, there's just overall funding, right? So um, within the non-for-profit sector, there's a lack of funding for um, for Black-led or Black and Brown-led orgs, right? So um, a lot of our organizations can't, can't uh, you know, um, manage on, you know, $5,000 handouts or, you know, $10,000 handouts if... If if we are to um, create systemic change on the east side of Buffalo, as black people that are, you know, running organizations or running businesses, we need the budgets and we need the funding to do that. Um, so that's that's one thing from the entrepreneurial and non-for-profit sector side, like give us the funds so we can support our people. That way we don't keep ending up in this cycle of like the white savior complex and right and like black people being tokenized and things not really changing. And then the other aspect is housing. Right. Give us loans. Give us money so we can yeah. buy our homes like affordable housing is cool. But, but home ownership but, bruh, you're saying like, is. Yeah. Like okay. I grew up just envisioning one day that, you know, I would have the white picket fence and, you know, and it never happened. And I was like, oh, OK. Racism is a thing. Loans won't give us money. Redlining is a thing. So, yeah, banks give us money. M&T was at 
um, I think when this tragedy happened, I think they had a table out on Jefferson giving away food. But it's like, where's the where's the mortgages? Where's the money, though? Like, where's the loans? Um, that could be helpful. All right. All right. <laughs> um, so I think funding, money, resources, trusting black people um, for sure. Um, and then with the, with those resources, with the money, giving folks resources like uh, financial advisors, um, accountants, right, helping folks to to manage that money so they're successful with it. Um, yeah, so I think overall, it's just time for overall systemic change in Buffalo and the way we do everything. And we have to be very visionary about what these changes look like and not be afraid to think outside of the box. That topic is so much bigger than the amount of time we have left. Yeah. But I want I want to take just 30 seconds as we close here to talk about Colored Girl Bike Bikes 2. <laughs> Colored Girls Bike 2 and your idea for a memorial in that neighborhood. Asphalt art. Right. So um, shout out to my intern, Anastasia, um, from uh, Cornell University. Um, But yeah, so we put together this proposal that we're going to be sending out soon to basically use um, urban design as a way to memorialize the lives, uh, those impacted um, by the racist terrorist attack. But then on top of that, you know, create safer streets in that area. If you look around um, the tops. Uh, intersections in the area, there's no infrastructure. There's like no crosswalks. Um, There's hardly like any, um, you know, dividing lines in the street. And I know that Jefferson is up for, you know, the street is up for, you know, new streetscaping and stuff. But why not use this opportunity in the meantime, because that takes a long time to use art, asphalt art, um, putting in some bump outs, um, you know, making some some art filled crosswalks. And so that's what we're proposing to Common Council. We put a budget together. So um, Common Council members, please look out for that. Uh, I will be sending you something soon. And I'm hoping that we can get your support and um, some funding to make that happen, to beautify the area, you know, to bring life back to the area. We're trying to plant some trees, um, some benches, uh, maybe, you know, with some engravements. Um, I think it's an opportunity to revitalize and rebuild that community while at the same time um, to pay respects to those that um that passed on and that were impacted. Jolanda, thanks One so much. More okay, quickly, go ahead. Is our holistic mobility hub that we're trying to yeah. that we're in the process of opening and wanting to open at Glenwood and Jefferson. The holistic mobility hub is dope because it incorporates um a bike shop, but with the bike shop it will be a health food store. So you you have to incorporate that with that. And then um, a mobility a mobility bank where people can get access to free bikes, wheelchairs, all those different things. Um, and that will be accompanied with a wellness center. So that would be the non-for-profit side. And then across the street, there will be a traveling hub for people to stop, do whatever they need to do. And then in the middle of that, there will be like improvements on the streetscape and designs. And this is all a proposal now or is it something it's that's... a proposal. We have our designs. We have our renderings ready. Um, we're talking to the Jefferson Business Association right now. Um, but we're going to need money for that. Um, and it's right in the area where the tops happen. So people are getting access to mobility and food um, all in the same time. And where we're building the community. I mean, it's a win-win. All right. <laughs> <laughs> This topic is too darn big. We we we're, we are out of time. We'll yeah. have you back. We and as this project uh, moves ahead, both of them, the uh, artscape and the uh, the hub, um, give us a call. Absolutely, keep us up to date. Thank you for thank, having me. Thank you, Jolanda Hill with Colored Girls Bike Two. Stand by. Coming up next, Jay Moran is with Taria Parsonen from the West New York Literacy Initiative. This is Buffalo. What's next? Stay with us. 
Funding for the WBFO's news desk for older adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. It's one thing to love public media, but it's a special thing to support it. Consider this. If you've got a car you don't need anymore, or you've got one that's simply too expensive to repair, arrange to donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. It's easy for you. Pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Here's how to get started. Go to WNED.org vehicles. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. If Our Water Could Talk, Erie County Fair, two Frederick Law Olmsted documentaries, and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED-PBS, now available on YouTube. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. And we continue on Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran, joined by Tarya Parsonen. She is the founder of the Western New York Education Alliance. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, Tarya, thanks for coming in. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Great to have you. Of course, uh, we are talking a lot about the city of Buffalo and uh, impacted neighborhoods that have been dealing with poverty issues uh, uh, for decades here in Buffalo, for sure. One of the biggest issues for uh, the people of Buffalo, of course, has been education, and the results have not been great, for sure. So we're going to talk a little bit about the science of reading, something that you are a big proponent of, for sure. But let's talk about uh, proficiency when it comes to reading uh, statewide and then here in the city of Buffalo. Absolutely. Well, my organization is focused on improving educational outcomes for students in Western New York, and we really felt that we had to start at the very beginning, which is literacy, which is, of course, the building block for all future success for students. And as we started diving into the research, we saw that statewide, you know, whether you're going by the NAEP scores or the education, the state education scores, they're under 50 percent. They're 34 to you know, 44%, which is... That's statewide. It's statewide. Wow. And, you know, if you look at Buffalo Public Schools, which in 2019, according to the state ed department, is 24.7% reading proficiency. You know, I think we have to come to a collective starting point of that is not acceptable. And what can we do to change this? I think everyone would agree with that. It's not acceptable for sure. When it comes to not being literate, what can be or not being having a great mastery of being able to read, what can be the outcomes of that? I mean, I know that this almost seems cliche to a certain extent, but at the same time, we should really be specific here. Absolutely. Being functionally illiterate really affects all aspects of life. And it's something that the city of Buffalo struggles with in terms of its functionally illiterate population. And, you know, um, also in other regions and um, districts as well. And, you know, it affects, you know, your simple ability to uh, go to the bank, to open a bank account, to do things online if you have to check yourself into a hospital, um, if you have to help your student, if you have to communicate with your teacher or um, anything. It, it affects every aspect of your life. Um, and so by simply uh, improving reading proficiency scores, we are improving life outcomes. 17.5% 
struggle with functional literacy in Buffalo and Niagara. That's and just to put that into a little more of a broad number, 147,000 people here, Buffalo and Niagara, basically what we like to call the Niagara Frontier or Western New York, uh, are struggling with literacy for sure. We want to talk about finding new ways, ways to change this. The science of reading. What do you mean by the science of reading? Well, I came to this, like I was saying, through through research. And as I was looking about how to how to make change with regards to literacy, it came down to the way that thing the way that New York State is doing things now, which is called balanced literacy. That's what the majority of school districts are doing. And um, and the science of reading, which is really instruction and curriculum that is aligned with science or with evidence, you know, based research. And um if you look at other states, you know, there are multiple other states, 20 other states that are doing this, that are legislatively taking action supported by governor. Um, Mississippi, for instance, has years of data to support what they've been doing. Um, but for some reason, New York State, you know, for whatever reason, is is not fully embracing this. And as we started diving into this and teachers started coming to us, we realized that teachers in the area were doing this on their own, um, researching uh, the best ways that were science aligned to teach kids. They're doing it on their own. They didn't know what other teachers were doing. They didn't know what other districts were doing. And they wanted to have that greater conversation. And this is how the idea for a literacy conference came to be, which is what all of the partners in the initiative uh, will be hosting in October so that we can really gather our educators to talk about the best ways to improve reading outcomes. Um, Let's talk about the conference for just a second here, because I know you wanted to get into that just a little bit. Uh, You have these partners. Let's talk about your partners uh, just a little bit here in Western New York, specifically there rather than maybe on national groups. Absolutely. We have, I believe, the number is now 14 groups. They are amazing. And um, forgive me if I don't mention everyone, but we have Say Yes Buffalo, Read to Succeed Buffalo. We have Ed Trust New York. We have We the Parents. Um, We have so many amazing people, the After School Network of Western New York. Um, And each of these organizations is working with children and families and adults, whether it's with student literacy, whether it's with adult literacy, whether it's with pre-K or aftercare programs. Everyone is touching children in some way with regards to literacy, and they all want to make sure they're doing it in the right way, in the most efficient way. It's interesting. Uh, there's an article in the Buffalo News. I want to give the credit to the uh, the author, Barbara O'Brien, who's a longtime uh, reporter, of course, of the Buffalo News. It's talking about your initiative, and she focused, uh, brought the, the article into a, a little bit of a, a personal focus in the sense that she focused on this Akron teacher, teacher in the Akron district. Talk about her and the methods that she's using and she believes she's finding success with. Absolutely. So Janine Detine is the teacher in Akron, and I know this because she, uh, I've talked with her about what she's been doing and uh, and learning from her, and it's really fantastic. They have a science of reading book club at the school filled with teachers who want to know more. They are getting together and talking and dissecting um, podcasts on the science of reading, and they are supported by their leaders and by their administration. And what they're doing, what the science of reading really is, just to go back Back to that question that I know you brought up, but it is basically science of reading is not a curriculum. It's not a fad. It's not a movement. It's not something that's here today, gone tomorrow. It's based on five decades of accepted research, grounded research, um, basically on how the brain learns to read. And I didn't realize this when I started, but to when you learn to read, you have to activate all four parts of the brain. You have to activate the neural pathways, and you can best activate these pathways 
in grades K through three. That's when you do it. And that's why everyone says that you have to teach kids to read by third grade. What happens after third grade is that those neural pathways harden and become harder to work with. But, it, you know, it's not to say that it can't be done sure. and that we can't work with, of course, with our middle schoolers and high schoolers. Of course, we do that. But, of course, the best time is K through three. And so what they're doing with in Akron and, of course, in other schools as well. These schools are all doing um, their own pieces of work, but they are teaching directly and explicitly in terms of decoding, in terms of phonics. You know, there's something in literacy called Scarborough's Rope. And, um, you know, the general public probably doesn't know this, but there are so many different strands woven into being a skilled reader, right? So it's language comprehension, it's decoding, it's, um, it's word comprehension, it's background knowledge. There are so many. And what they're doing is they have to weave this in. You know, we talk about it being a science. You have to activate the neural pathways, but it's also an art too, you know. So you have to, the teachers are are doing this incredibly difficult work every day um, using the science to um, weave these strands together to create skilled readers. It's really amazing. How does a teacher know that it's being impactful? I mean, we can look down the road and say, oh my, I'm I'm a kindergarten teacher and now they're in third grade and they've got these great uh, uh, English language arts scores. But uh, how does a teacher know that they're making this this science connect? Yes. Well, schools have benchmark assessments, and this sort of goes to a greater data problem that I think we have. <clears throat> Excuse me. We the public has access to two forms of data, which is NYSED, the state data, and NAEP and AEP their data. Okay, but we don't have access to the school's data. And the school is monitoring and checking these kids with benchmark assessments all the time so that they can react to and help these kids in real life time, you know, which is fantastic. But again, we don't know what's going on. Fortunately, the teachers know what's going on. And when they do assessments on these kids, they're seeing the results or lack thereof. And according to Janine, this teacher in Akron, you know, apparently the results that they've been having in Akron have been great. Um, One in six are dyslexic. Correct. That is a stunning statistic. How, I I think, again, back to testing, I think it's one thing that's most certainly better than it was, let's say, when I was in school working with uh, chalk and slate. Uh, But um, one in six are dyslexic. So this is something has nothing to do with personality, doesn't have to do with uh, cultural elements. It's a it's a, a, a neurological uh, issue? Correct, correct. Yeah. It has nothing to do with intelligence or how well you do in school or how well you can do in school. Um, it's uh, uh, difficulty with reading and decoding and putting words together, right? And I was stunned when I started doing the research on this and saw how prevalent it was. One in six, right? And you and I were talking about this before the show. But if we look at testing, <clears throat> and we're just, um, you know, emerging from, you know, the age of all the COVID tests and, and how prevalent we've been doing that. If we actually did universal kindergarten testing for dyslexia, it would have monumental change for life outcomes. It would be stunning. And states are doing this. I believe Oregon just started implementing this legislatively, statewide universal kindergarten screening for dyslexia. And then you know right away if that kid can get help. If I could um, state some crazy statistics to you for a second, 50% of incarcerated people are functionally illiterate due to dyslexia. Okay, so if we're looking at the school to prison pipeline, you know, which is frequently called the dyslexia to prison pipeline, and then 30 more percent of that number are underliterate due to poor instruction. So, right, if you take those struggling readers who are not helped, right, and and you look at them going straight to prison, essentially, 40 percent of homeless people 
are functionally illiterate due to dyslexia. You know, that's amazing. 66% of kids cannot read on grade level in eighth grade, and $2.2 trillion is lost due to illiteracy, um, which when I first learned about this, it, it boggled the mind. But I also knew that there was a way. There was something we can do about this. And in New York State, we do have, I believe it's it's just now happening, a dyslexia task force. Um, it's being worked on by Assemblyman Robert C. Carroll and others. But to be honest, I can't believe we're still in the task force stage of this. There, for me and for so many other education advocates, there is an urgency to helping our children and especially an urgency of literacy and you know, we need to identify dyslexic kids now. And I know that that's what they're starting to do in New York City. So they're setting a great example. I uh, wanted to get into that a little bit. I uh, want to also reset here. This is Taria Parson in with me uh, this morning, the founder of the Western New York Education Alliance. We're talking about the science of reading. Um, different districts, you're talking about New York City. So districts inside New York State can deploy this science of reading curriculum. I'll just use that term. New York City? you say is embracing this? Yes, that's right. So they have a new mayor, um, Mayor Adams and Chancellor David C. Banks. And Mayor Adams is dyslexic. Okay. So he he knows from where he's coming from. And he's made it a priority to make sure that kids are taught explicitly and directly in science-aligned curriculum and instruction, but also to make sure that dyslexic kids are reached, that they are diagnosed and taught. So it's, it's really interesting. They're going to be implementing this in the fall and all eyes are watching, but it's it's good news. Certainly is another district that uh, caught my uh, eye when we were talking a little bit. Um, The Baltimore public schools are employing a program, Wit and Wisdom. Again, this is coming from this concept of science of reading. How can we differentiate that? What, What do we understand about it? Well, what's interesting with Baltimore Public Schools and their superintendent is Sonia Santelise, which she is fantastic. And she wanted to tackle literacy head on. And she felt that by implementing um, knowledge-rich content and curriculum would be the best way, along with teacher training and instruction. So she's implemented a curriculum called Wit and Wisdom. I can't really speak to it exactly, but I've heard it is very highly rated. It is fantastic. And it's also culturally relevant to the kids. You know, I think one of the myths, um, there's so many myths about science of reading, which I'd love to tackle too, but one of them is that it's not culturally responsive, which is untrue. You know, absolutely untrue. There are so many things about it which teaches kids about their own history and where they can see themselves in the curriculum and in the instruction, which is so important, as we know. Yeah, that, that's something that's really come out of uh, the programs that we've had. Dave and I were talking at the top of the hour about some memorable moments that we've had in this show. But that's one thing that we're hearing about is just the idea that so many black people are dealing with the concept that there's a everything that they're taught, everything that is is passed along comes from a perspective of white supremacy and that they are left out right off the bat on so many levels of, of conversation. It's interesting that you were telling me also about this, uh, I think it was a barbershop in Brooklyn yes. that is trying to do the same type of thing, to, to present culturally relevant uh, uh, reading opportunities for their their patrons. Absolutely. You know, and this really goes back to literacy is all about everyone. It's about the partners. It's about the community. It's about families. It's about businesses. You name it, literacy needs to be on everyone's tongue. But 
in terms of the barbershops, it's fantastic. Um, the barbershop in Brooklyn has its own literacy hub, and it's full of decodable books, which is um, aligned with science. And I know some people are, are asking, what are decodable books? But there are ways in which teach children explicitly and directly how to read, um, but, but that are culturally relevant as well. And I know there's barbershop books in Buffalo as well. We're reaching out to them. But there are places that you can uh, access with in the community that you can turn into literacy hubs, which is fantastic. And one of your partners uh, is uh, uh, of the Education Alliance is actually they train uh, their tutors, for lack of a term, they're getting into what, the Head Start programs, things like that. Yes, absolutely. On the Literacy Initiative, we have Read to Succeed Buffalo. They are doing fantastic work. They work within Buffalo Public Schools, and they're specifically looking at the K through three levels, as we were talking about with the neural pathways about getting kids to read in those early ages. And they're doing high-impact uh, science-aligned tutoring um, through their AARP program where they, they have volunteers. So the volunteers are specifically trained by these literacy specialists, which is fantastic. But also they're working with Head Start and pre-K programs to make sure that in pre-K, when these little ones are just starting out reading, how can we reach them in the best, most effective way that's aligned with science? What about enjoyment of reading when it comes to it? Uh- Obviously, if you're a better reader, you're probably going to enjoy it a little bit more. But do we find a a correlation between just the the types of kids who seem to embrace reading right from the start? Do we have an understanding of that? I'm so glad you asked about that because that is also one of the myths of the science of reading is that it is joyless. (laughs) They they talk about phonics and they talk about drill and kill and how you're just drilling, drilling phonics into them. Um, And you know what? That is simply not true. Um, Balanced literacy, I saw this the other day and it was a great quote, balanced literacy does not have, does not contain all the joy, does not own the joy. The joy can be found everywhere, especially when you're given the keys to to unlock reading. Um, and, you know, really, the joy of reading is is brought by the teacher as well, you know, to instill and infuse that in their classrooms. Um, but we have to remember that the one-third of kids who will learn how to read no matter what type of instruction they're, they're using, um, science of reading or, or curriculum and instruction that is aligned with research does not hold them back. It does not hurt them in any way. Um, they are taught to read and they're brought up just as everyone else. And, you know, that really is what equity is all about. If we're going to actually walk the walk here, we talk about really wanting to have equity. But if you're only reaching one third of students, that is not equity. You know, if we have access to programs and instruction and curriculum that can reach everyone and that is truly equitable, then that is what we must be doing. What about social economic factors when it comes to reading? What do we understand about that? Interestingly enough, the science has shown, the National Institute of Health has come out with the fact that 95% of all children can learn how to read, despite socioeconomic background, despite how they're brought up, where they're raised, who they are. There are 5% who, you know, with severe cognitive delays, who will have trouble, but 95%, that's all kids essentially can learn how to read. But of course, there are factors holding them back, especially, you know, if we could talk about the knowledge gap, I'm happy to Sure, to expand well. on it, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there's uh, an author named Natalie Wexler. She's written a book called The Knowledge Gap, but it's basically talking about the achievement gap, which is, you know, if we're talking about the Matthew effect, like in the Bible, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, the same thing is going on in education and with literacy. The good readers continue to excel and the poor readers are left down where they are. In fact, 
fact, even declining. Um, so if we could um, look more closely at that, you know, in terms of um, the Matthew effect and um, gosh, you know what? I totally forgot where I was going. Sure. Well, this. we were talking about the, the knowledge <laughs> gap. Well, the knowledge gap. Natalie Wexler, yeah. Knowledge is so important. Um, you know, a lot of these kids do not have the background knowledge needed to comprehend what they're reading. So, for instance, let me expand on that for a little bit in terms of field trips, going on family vacations. Maybe their dad is an engineer at Moog and, and they have conversations about science at night. That all contributes to background knowledge that you're going to use to access and understand the books that you're reading, right? Now, a lot of these kids who are in high poverty at risk areas will not have that background knowledge, okay? But again, when it comes back to equity, schools can fulfill that. Schools can give background knowledge through content-rich curriculum and be providing that. And, you know, I was reading in Natalie Wexler's book, she was talking about curriculum that engages the kids with ancient Mesopotamia. They're talking about ancient Egypt. They're giving the kids all this knowledge. And for the kids who might not necessarily um, be suffering from a knowledge gap, they're just as fascinated and interested in all this stuff as well. But um, we've got to we've got to close the knowledge gap as well. That's just that's part of the thread of Scarborough's rope, too, like in terms of creating a skilled reader by weaving all the elements together. That's crucial as well. Interesting uh, that uh, you, we, one of our previous guests on this show, one of our first guests was uh, Sam Radford, as a matter of fact, from uh, We the Parents here in the city of Buffalo. If you listen to WBFO or pretty much any news station, you're probably familiar with hearing from Sam in some regards. He's most certainly a, a, a vocal proponent and critic of uh, the education system. Uh, talk about uh, how you've been uh, um, working with Sam. Sam has been fantastic, and uh, he has been working with uh, the Western New York Education Alliance for quite a while on various initiatives. He, His organization, We the Parents, is a partner on the Literacy Initiative, and he has been right there with us every step of the way in terms of looking at the research behind science of reading, looking at what New York City is doing. Um, for his show, he brought in Dr. Tracy Whedon, and she is also a partner on the initiative with the Nyehouse Education Center. They are based in Texas, but they do literacy work nationwide. And he brought in Dr. Whedon for his radio show, and we were talking about that, and it was fantastic. But come September, which is Literacy Month, we are going to um, be doing – something literacy related, you know, pretty much every week that month. And we're going to have a Buffalo March for Literacy Saturday, September 24th. And we're going to bring in Dr. Whedon. We're going to bring in Dr. Maria Murray of the Reading League in Syracuse. And I'm sure what we're going to have a lot of other speakers. It's going to be amazing. You know, it's interesting, uh, uh, as you we were talking about Sam Radford, uh, some of the, the, the comments that I've heard from him through, through the years is very powerful comments. But he would, he would talk about, you know, he sounded like he spent as much time as he possibly could in his kids' schools and how in one classroom there would be, I won't use the word chaos, but a struggling learning environment. Mm -hmm. In another classroom, it would not be like that. It would be something that was functioning and functioning at a high level. Mm -hmm. So much of that, I guess, about the teacher. Mm -hmm. what, what about teachers? Uh, in, and when, it, when we get to it, I mean, I know teachers, I know lots of teachers, and all of them have the, the same good heart when it comes to this, the same good intentions, but yet the results aren't always there. What about that? What do you find? Right. Well, you know, it is it is a little bit, as I was saying before, about the Wild West out there. You know, everyone seems to be doing something different and implementing different approaches. But you're right. Teachers at the end of the day want to 
do right by their students and they want improved reading outcomes. And so many of them have expressed interest in um, how can aligning with science and research help do that. And so we we literally will bring in the educators in October for free. The, the conference will be at no cost to them to provide them with an opportunity to come together and speak to themselves, speak amongst each other, and learn from the best speakers in the nation. Um, we actually have booked Natalie Wexler. I have not press released this or announced it anywhere <laughs> else. So dun, dun, dun. It's, uh, Natalie Wexler will be speaking. Um, she wrote The Knowledge Gap. But we're going to have amazing speakers. And I think Dr. Tracy Whedon will be there as well. But teachers need to be supported by their principals and by their superintendents and by their administration. And if there's going to be teacher training, uh, there also needs to be principal and admin training as well. They need to know what's going on. This is what I've been hearing from all the educators. I'm not an educator myself, but from what I've been hearing from everyone is that they want the support from their principals and from their administration in their efforts. And maybe I was burying the lead here a little bit now as we're talking. I'm, maybe I'm coming to it, but let's talk about then the structure of schools. You're talking about principals and administrators, and you know, I went to. Uh, uh, a couple of ceremonies for my uh, goddaughter's uh, graduation in the last couple of weeks, and I saw a principal who was very much in control or showed that he was in control, but you could tell he was he is d- juggling chainsaws, trying to keep up to date with everything that he has to do. Um, then you go into the classroom. Not every classroom has aides. How m- many more people do we need, whether it's, like you said, a principal who can buy into the science of reading and be trained, or just having administrators that also are on that, do we need more people in these schools? Do we need more personnel to make sure that, like you said, this reading gap that is existing, it's been here for a while. That's right. The science is one thing, but it also sounds to me like we need more people. And and you could be very right about that. In ter- and, you know, first, let me let me give a shout out to the schools, to the teachers, to the principals, to the administrators, because over the past two years, you're right, they have been put through the ringer trying to keep up with public health on top of education. Um, so, uh, yes, trying to keep up with everything, which is why we're also going to offer, and I have not publicly announced this um, before, but we will off- be offering an Administrator's Day, a virtual Administrator's Day just for superintendents and their administration with regards to the science of reading. We're going to be bringing in an amazing speaker for that. Um, but we want to make sure that that we're not just reaching the teachers, but that we're reaching the administrators as well so that they fully understand what's going on. And in terms of COVID relief money, um, in terms of hiring more people and and what to focus on, I've talked to a number of superintendents who've expressed that their main priority right now is mental health, which I get. You know, student mental health, we, we all have to acknowledge that there is a teen mental health crisis and a child mental health crisis right now. And it is, it is bad. It is really bad. Um, but mental health goes hand in hand with literacy. It can't be either or. It has to be both and. And that in terms of trauma, in terms of the shame that you feel if you cannot read and how that compounds over time to lifelong outcomes, um, which, of course, is connected to mental health, we've got to tackle everything at once. Um, And uh, I I do believe that COVID relief money, while while schools are flush with it, are being used – before it dries up to in the best, most efficient ways, especially as it relates to investing in teachers and administrators in terms of the science-aligned um, curriculum and the instruction and the training. I'm Tarya Parson, and we're coming down to our, our final uh, moment here, and it seems like 
every question I had I ask at the end of a program comes to the same thing. Hope. Do you have hope for this? Do you have hope that that in five years from now that we're going to be talking about greater uh, literacy results in Buffalo and in New York State? Absolutely. I have hope. You always have to have hope. And I, my mission, and I know that the mission of every single one of our 12 partners is that Buffalo and Western New York will be the most literate region in New York State. And I don't think that's crazy to put that out there. I think it's something amazing to strive for. And I know that we all want that for our children. We definitely want that. And it is most certainly worth striving for. And we appreciate you joining us. Tarya Parsonen, the founder of the Western New York Education Alliance. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. This is Buffalo What's Next, right here on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. Thank you.